All right, let's go. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Marta. Good morning. So today I have the pleasure to have with me uh, on the podcast, Marta Milo, who used to work at the University of Sheffield and worked in the same faculty where I worked before. And now you've escaped Sheffield to go and work further down south. So big welcome on this podcast, Marta, and let's get cracking and tell us a little bit about, you know, your career so far. Good morning, everyone, and thank you so much, Sandrine, for uh, inviting me to this podcast. I'm very excited to share my experiences with you all. So, yes, you're right. I was in Sheffield. I have been working in Sheffield for a long time, and now I'm in Cambridge, and I work at AstraZeneca. Uh, my career started in Italy. I'm Italian from Naples. I studied there the most of the my studies apart from one final year of my PhD where I came to Cambridge at the engineering department and that for me was uh, a massive open my eyes of what I really wanted to do how I wanted to do and uh, I, although I didn't know where my research was going yet I was definitely positive on the fact that I wanted to do research. So that's where I started. I went back home and I found uh, a postdoc position here in UK through my connection from uh, the time when I was a student. I, I have a, a mathematical first, a maths first degree and a computer science and applied maths PhD, but I now I'm a computational biologist, so I work at the interface between two different fields, which is biology and maths and computer science. So I went to Sheffield as a postdoc, and we started to look together with the person who was my supervisor, my PI at the time, and we started to look at problems to do with gene expression, microarray, and that introduced me to this new field of biology. So I had to take the courage and retrain, <laughs> which was quite hard, uh, coming from a completely different mind frame. So I retrained through a very nice fellowship that the Wellcome Trust had at the time, which was Advanced Research fellow Training Fellowship. I was allowed to do research and training at the same time. So that was an ideal platform. So after that, I had spent a long time in the biomedical science department as a postdoc. Uh, then I moved into the clinical space where I, I worked together with doctors, clinicians, and patients. And that actually was a super important experience for me because it helped me to understand and to feel the impact that my science, uh, my work could have on people. And therefore, put everything into the perspective. So all my work so far, all the science that I do so far, always look at what do I do with it? How do I use it to improve quality of life? So then I went back to more, the, more of an academic profile within the basic science. So I became a lecturer at the biomedical science department. Spent a long time in Sheffield, family-related things. I had young kids. So of course, stability was needed. And after almost 19 years, I decided to leave academia and move to healthcare in industry. So I am now a data science lead at AstraZeneca R&D. So still is research and development, but it's more keeping an eye on what we do for patients. So how am I going to use my experience, my science to help and improve quality of life for patients, particularly I'm in oncology. So that's my career so far. Okay, a very an amazing career. I mean, there are lots of things to unpick from it. One one of the things that I'm interested in the, the transition from being a mathematician or you know a computer scientist. I, I don't really know how you define yourself specifically, but doing basically modeling of sort and really complex stuff that, as a biologist, often we have no grasp whatsoever, and and learning to 
work with biologists in terms of trying to understand the biologists because the biologists are very unlikely to understand the stuff that you do, that's certain. <laughs> so how was it to, in a way, start from scratch of learning again, you know, as, as, as a postdoc? Uh... So one thing that has always been a sort of a characteristic of the, the way I sort of am interested in, no, in, in knowledge, in learning, is curiosity. I was curious. That was the major drive, right? So that that was actually even beyond the fact that I had to go back on the textbooks and sit in the in the lecture halls as, as an undergraduate. So the curiosity of learning this stuff that I could see in the data, and I had non 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 understanding of what that meant in real life. That type of curiosity was the major drive. And that was what helped me to overcome all the difficulty. Because one thing that was extremely hard was to try to keep my computational uh, research and knowledge up to date. At the same time, uh, learning a completely different new field, completely undisputable way of seeing things. So it's either yes or no in maths to a more empirical or maybe or maybe this or it's a lot of uncertainty. So that was very, very hard. Uh, the nice thing about that, it helped me to see things from the point of view of a very dry logic in a little bit more perspective. So it helped me to emphasize intuition that I had in the mathematical Uh, in the modeling science world, when I was writing equations, I would look, okay, what these equations are going to take me to. So that type of intuition came from my mind being trained to look at the experiment in the experiments in the lab and saying, okay, I'm doing this, but what am I expecting to see? Is that what I need to see? How do I adjust the protocol if things go wrong? Right. So that was very helpful. And equally, My logical mind, the way of thinking in algorithmic steps helped hugely to create protocols that were robust. So the, the two things are kind of compensating each other. It was quite hard, but the drive in both senses was curiosity. I've been running some workshops over the last few weeks on collaboration with different groups of researchers. And when I worked at Sheffield, I had run this program that maybe you had come across, you know, the Crucible program where I was trying yes. to get people from different disciplines to, to collaborate. And the work that you do is completely anchored in collaboration uh, across discipline. And what do you think that you've learned, uh, you know, over the years? Uh, and again, with the work that you are doing now, you know, with having stakeholders who are in the medical healthcare profession, you know, collaboration is really an anchor of developing, you know, very innovative research. And especially we now with the, you know, a year of COVID, you know, we know that it's important, but doing it well, is hard. So what have you learned yourself about collaborating well? So first of all, I just like to emphasize what you just said. Collaboration is key today for innovative science. There is no longer the, the days where we were stuck in the lab, a scientist was stuck in the lab, either in front of a piece of paper writing equation or in front of a microscope looking down for hours in the darkness. They are gone. Today, science the real pieces of science that bring innovation, that make advancement in knowledge come from collaboration. So understanding that this is, is a key for any future researcher because building the basis to enable yourself to collaborate well is essential. So in my sort of experience, when I decided to retrain, Another need that I had there was to be able to speak the same language of the people that I wanted to collaborate with. So although well, I did the retraining because I wanted just, it was my choice, I wanted to know more in depth, but understanding the language of the other people and not just the way they think, the way they need to ask the questions and the type of output that they need to receive is essential for collaboration. So one thing that I've learned 
from my collaborations is that you can give your ideas, ask the questions that you have, but it's always good to listen. So you've got to de- sit there, listen, and listen to what they have to say and then contribute. So this was, for me, at the beginning of my career, something that came almost, I was lucky, came almost intuitively because of this sort of curiosity thing, drive that I have, that I tend to kind of, I'm curious, so I try and tend to listen. But in with the time, I realized that actually that was a good strategy <laughs> because if I'm sitting there, I'm trying to listen, and they had a feel that they ask you the right questions and they say, okay, this is what our problems are. And then, then you can come in and maybe your preconceptions die, right? You say, oh, that's actually not where I thought it was. And that is where the nice collaboration starts because then you start sharing ideas. So this is what I've learned from my collaboration, the nicest collaboration. And the ones that I still have, to these days, from AstraZeneca to, to some of the scientists in Sheffield, they all came from this mutual exchange of ideas at the beginning, even completely destroying um, a research plan that wouldn't work. And that was really is something that I would definitely advise to any of the young researchers to do when they think to start a collaboration, to listen, really trying to figure out what is in first the language that they talk in terms of questions, the way they ask, the way they handle the output, and then really listen and question yourself. Is, is that right? What I'm proposing for them or not? One of the things that often people ask me in workshop is, you know, when do you start sharing an idea with a potential collaborator? I mean, there is a lot of fear in terms of sharing ideas that your ideas are going to be stolen, that people are going to take your ideas and not acknowledge, you know, that it came from you. And and often people keep things to the chest because they because of this fear. And no collaboration can can ever happen if you're keeping things to the chest. And, uh, you know, in a lot of the advice that I give, I always say, well, you know, they, they use the, the mindset of abundance in terms of the way that you're thinking of ideas. You know, ideas are endless, but people don't necessarily feel this way. So in, in, in your own experiences of, you know, collaborating and developing ideas and sharing ideas, what's been your experience of, you know, the point at which you feel ready to share an idea or maybe experiences that you've had where you felt, well, I should not have told this idea to this person? I think that collaboration is mainly based on trust. With uh, with time, you know, with experience, you learn how to establish this trust. And uh, of course, trust comes if they trust you. So the first thing you need to do, although it seems a little bit sort of counterintuitive. So if I need to trust you, Sandrine, I need you, Sandrine, to trust me first. Otherwise, this kind of relationship cannot go on. So sharing ideas, you've got to do it, right? I had cases where I shared my ideas. Uh, in a way, I was lucky because <laughs> collaborating with the experimentalists or doctors, maybe my mathematical ideas weren't really uh, understood. So even if they wanted to take it and steal it, uh, they, they wouldn't be able to do it in a way that would make uh, publications without me, basically. It has happened, although, within similar peers, you know, from the computational side, I did have situation where my ideas have been stolen uh, and then taken and done other things. But and I was never there to blame the person that stole the ideas. I self-reflected on myself and said, so what have I done wrong? Why has this happened? What is that I didn't communicate? And what type of contribution I missed so that... The idea was there, the intuition was right. But so this type of self-reflection actually takes the disappointment of having an idea stolen, turns it into learning, right? Unfortunately, every one of us in, in science, in research, have gone through this. And actually, it is healthy to go through that because it helps you to build your confidence and helps you to... Every one of us has their own learning. 
and we all learn in a different pace and in a different way. Learning how to make people to trust you is hard. I'm still learning. (laughs) Actually, I'm starting from scratch here in this new context, Uh, but it is essential. So I don't think people should fear that others can steal their ideas. There are endless ideas number of ideas so okay they stole one it's a shame you know how to sort of what what is the message self-reflect number one and also of course if they stole your ideas they didn't make themselves to trust in a way, it's a, it's a way of, of, of sifting through the relationship that you have. You know, if somebody is doing that, then it's not worth investing, you know, yes. in the relationship and the collaboration. So you may as well know from the start the kind of person you've got in front of you. A very successful collaboration comes from complete trust from both sides. So, and that is from all point of view, data, uh, understanding problems that may come when there is pressure from all sorts of things, including sharing the writing of the manuscript and also being very open to feedback. So people don't understand that actually feedback is essential, right? So you don't have to worry about asking feedback. And if I'm collaborating with you, for example, Sandrine, uh, I shouldn't have fear to give you some feedback and say, look, maybe you would want to do this in a different way, or maybe this doesn't really work from what we are seeing, because it is how you improve and how you make the best piece of science. In this case, we're talking about science, but whatever, that applies to any subject, really. Any professional settings, yeah. When you navigate your research careers, there are many points at which you have really hard choices to make. And what's really been your own approach in, you know, making the decision to go in one direction or another? What's been your ethos, if I may say, in the way that you've navigated your your career? So there has been moments where I had to face very hard decisions. And one lately, just to leave academia and move to industry, that that was one, one of a hard decision. My ethos has always been to follow what I felt was the best way for me to contribute to science, to follow my instinct and to follow my passion. Because every type of work, it doesn't really give you the benefit and doesn't allow you to feel happy if you, if you don't do it with passion. And, and you can't really give anything to others if you don't do it with passion. So I always, this was my ethos in anything I've done in my career, is to follow my passion, to follow what I could do better, to feel that I was contributing, giving my passion, my everything, my head, my ideas, my skills. So I always try to be very, very honest, first of all, with myself. So what is that I really want to do? And have I given everything that I could to achieve that. So that, that was my, my, my questions and my kind of ethos comes from trying to follow these. The point that you make here is important, so honesty with yourself, because we, we have kind of a, an image of ourselves, of the person we would want to be. And is this persona that we are creating for ourselves, is this what we really want or dream? Or is it something that we feel is expected of us? We may want to become a certain person, but maybe it's not the person that really inside you that you actually want to become. And often there is a lot of tension between these different persona of a future self and say, okay, what's the reality of actually what I want right now? This is a, a very, very good point. The, in my experience, I can talk about myself very openly. I have no problems about that. In my experience, it is what it expected for me to be. It was twofold. First of all, from myself in person, and then from others around, or my perception of others around. So the hardest thing was to overcome my own ideas of what I'm supposed to be and what other people expect me to to be, not because they actually wanted me to be that, because I felt that they wanted me to be that. And that that is actually was the hardest thing to overcome when I had to make radical decisions like leaving academia and going to industry. 
And that is something that if I have in time, uh, I would try to make, mitigate. I would try to avoid being very, very sort of close mind about this because it's where you make your improvement in career, where you stop, you self-reflect and you say, hold on a moment. Is where I'm sitting right now, where I really want to be. Am I giving everything I, I, I can give? Am I happy? And then is, is this what people are expecting me to do? Yes. So is that what you, what myself is expecting, wants and has expected me to do? And then it's where is, if you then start to ask these questions and there is a clash, right? So there is, okay, no, that's not what I want to do. That is not what I think I can be then it's the time to change. So if you are sitting in a job or in a position that it doesn't exploit your skills, it doesn't make you happy and it doesn't give enough to, to the research fields or to the community or to whatever you're doing, it's the wrong place to be. And that's something that needs to be faced. In a lot of the workshops that I run with people, often I, I'll say to them, what we are doing is just giving you the time to pause and reflect of where you where you are at and thinking about all the spheres. And, and I think that a lot of people avoid that sort of, you know, press the, the pause button to reflect and really reconsider. Because in a way, you know, thinking about your transition to industry, being a very established academic, for a lot of people, your position as a lecturer is, you know, the dream. So many postdocs say, you know, why on earth would she leave academia? It's like... I did have I did have people asking me that. Can you tell us what was the driver, you know, what made you make that transition? So the type of work that I do, the type of science that I do now, currently, I don't feel that the academia gave me enough chances or enough opportunity to exploit at maximum my skills. And at this stage of my life, I felt that with every all the experience that I've accumulated, my knowledge, uh, also my personal growth, my maturity, I, I am in, in the moment where I can contribute at the maximum. So I was sitting in a place where I didn't feel I was actually even giving a 10% of what I could. So I had to change. I felt that I, I owe it to myself. So I had to change that and I had to take the courage to do it because it took quite a lot of courage to do it, uh, to go at my age into a new environment, in a different reality, uh, and when people were asking me, why, you know, why are you leaving academia? Are you crazy? And I was like, no, because I leave academia because I love science and I feel that I want to learn more about science in a different context. And, you know, who knows? I might come back to academia. But if I didn't do that, I would have regretted. And I, and I think that whoever is you know, all the young researchers, the biggest advice that I can give, don't do anything that then you can regret. Because the fears changing, it's nothing compared to the feel of regret and the feel that you, you then, uh, you can't do, or you, you haven't been able to give everything that you could. Uh, you know, it can go wrong. Nothing wrong with that. You can make and failures. It's not a bad thing. Failures is a good thing because it helps you to improve. It helps you to learn and you say, okay, I failed here. Why have I failed here? How can I make it better? So if you don't fail, you, you can never improve. There is something that you said that I really like is that you said, uh, I owe it to myself. And, yes. and I think that's a, that's a very powerful thing. It's almost a form of, of really respecting who you are, what you've got to give to, to science and or to whatever the context that you're working with to have a sense of really wanting to contribute and a sense of how you want to contribute. In a way, you know, it's, a, it's really a form of confidence and we don't develop professionally in a vacuum. We have lots of influence through mentors, friends, uh, family members, head of departments, you know, line manager, whatever. In your case, who do you think have been people who've really influenced you the most in terms of supporting you to build this confidence that, you, that you've built? Certainly the people who I had the fortune to have as mentors and, and people who were able to coach me directly or indirectly. This mentoring and coaching is essential. 
one thing that I would repeat if I'd go back or I would change if I'd go if I could go back is to have more of it and then be more aware of how important coaching and mentoring is for a young researcher. It's a really very important both of them to build this confidence because it helps to self-reflect. It helps to see directions. And from my point of view, I didn't have enough of those. I had few exposure to mentoring and I would have wanted a lot more now, I realize. But one thing that I really built my professionally, my confidence on is knowledge. I'm always very hard with myself in terms of knowledge. Do I know enough about this to say anything? And so the more you learn, the more the confidence comes from the knowledge, at least in a professional setting. Whatever you do, science or not science, is that. But once you build that basic confidence, then the maturity, the personal knowledge, the personal maturity as an individual, it comes from the coaching. The coaching that helps you to self-reflect, helps you to question yourself and helps you to see what you have done to, to get to where you are. And there comes to the, you know, to that phase where you say, hey, hold on a moment, I owe it to myself. My confidence was built on that knowledge and really self-reflection. When there was a time where I realized I had to change, self-reflection was essential. You know, in the business world, in the private sector, coaching is something that is much more acceptable. Why do you think that it's not something that is so embedded in, in academia? It's a good question. And I don't think I have a full answer yet. One thing I wanted to say before I try to answer this question is the first thing I did when I moved to AstraZeneca is to do courses on leading people, on coaching, on agility leadership. So I did quite a lot of coaching as a student, <laughs> trying to figure out what is going on. Because I had, of course, I realized that none of this was happening in, in where I was before moving here. And I needed to understand what ways that it takes to coach people. And while I was doing these courses, I was sort of mapping back to what was happening in the academic environment, what was missing. And the first thing that came to me was that in the academic environment, people are scared to get feedback. People are scared to ask about feedback. So people they are kind of protected, overprotected of their own environment, of their own selves, to push themselves out of the comfort zone and say, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of me in this situation? Can I give you, can, can I have your feedback on that? So that is something so that does not happen in academia. And very often, in, at least in my experience, when I did ask for feedback in the academic environment, it was given and not in a constructive way. It was given maybe not intentionally, actually, certainly not intentionally, but it perceived as destructive. It made me reluctant to go back and ask again. In the industrial environment, instead, feedback is given always, even if you don't ask for it. And it's always given in a very constructive way. Also, the pace is different, right? So it is very much structured because there are deliverables and that helps to keep a certain timeline, right? And then you, you know what you're doing next. And therefore, you know, okay, I haven't achieved that. Why? Why is that? And then your line manager comes in and coaches you. I have a mentor here as well as a line manager. So I go to my mentor and I say, you know, I feel awkward about this. Why? What's happening to me? So how do I... How can I get to my next stage of career? This is the question I asked to my mentor. And it's taking a while for us to get the right relationship in place. But in the academia, this doesn't exist. So coaching in academia sometimes is seen as a waste of time, but it's essential for, at least for the early stage careers, it is such an essential thing. So we still have a massive amount of work to be doing in that area. 
One of the things I'll be really keen to hear from you, I run a program called Daring to Dare, and it's really getting women to reflect on where they are, what they want. And one of the things that many really struggle is this idea of being visible, you know, in their research community in order for people to pay attention to what they have to bring. So how did you go about yourself creating a visibility so that people will come to you to collaborate with you? Because, you know, people will say, you know, well, I don't want to blow my own trumpet. My work speaks for itself. But there is a lot of research out there and research doesn't speak for itself. And you have to be very proactive to put yourself out there. What was your own approach of doing this? And did you struggle? Yes, I did struggle. We all do. But women, I think, in particular, struggle more in the academic environment. Uh, a lot less in the industrial environment. I still haven't understood why in particular, but definitely in the academic environment, there is there is a struggle. It is a struggle. I never see myself as a, a woman professionally. I see myself as a scientist. So I removed this bias whenever I am in a meeting and I just try to be who I am and contribute with what I have to say in terms of knowledge, in terms of understanding. But one of the ways that I've used to enhance my visibility is always to bring something to the table, something that not is in my own interest, but in the interests of the table. So if I was at a meeting, for example, where there was a discussion on a certain topic, I would always add something that is unique from what I can bring with my skills to that topic, regardless whether the, the topic was of my interests or not. So creating this visibility in that moment even if it wasn't something that I was super interested in, then later allowed me to drive or stir more towards what it would be interesting for me. So it's all, again, creating that little trust. And then the visibility also that I tried to do quite a lot at the beginning of my career is through networking. So you go to meetings and they know you, right? And they know you, they know who you are. And then they see you participating in the seminars, asking the questions, trying to get engaged with the group. Often I used to go to lab meetings of other groups just for that. And that helped me a lot with that visibility because then people, if they had, for example, a question or some or a problem to solve, they would have said, oh, I know she's working on that. So I, would put in, I was putting myself forward for seminars uh, in the lab meetings, present my work. Uh, even if it wasn't really there for any specific collaborative object, but just for visibility. And that helped me a lot. And then once you created this network, then you are visible. And then, then eventually with time, you can even choose who you want to work with and you, who you don't want to work with. But as a woman, I remember at the beginning of when I started, I'm saying biomedical science and not because I wanted to point the finger against biomedical science, because it was my experience in general. I think it happens everywhere. It happens here in Cambridge as well. I remember the beginning, I remember I used to sort of sit there quietly, maybe even lift my hands up for asking questions and never being picked on the questions. And I was like, oh, what's going on here? And then I was like, trying to figure out why I wasn't, I was like transparent. I couldn't be seen. So I started then to think, okay, watch others asking questions. What type of questions they were asking, right? And then I noticed that they were asking all kind of hard questions, challenging questions. And then I was thinking, ah, okay. So one thing I had to do is then to deepen my knowledge so that I was in the position to ask a challenging question. And when finally I had the chance to ask a challenging question, then the game turned because then I was always picked when I had my hands up. Although it sounds a little bit kind of weird, right? Because I said, oh, what do you mean? You're challenging the question, you're challenging the but yes, unfortunately, that was one way <laughs> that things and the games turned around. One of the things that you said earlier, Marta, was that you never saw yourself as a, as a woman, but, you know, as a scientist. And 
I will challenge that and say that specifically because of your discipline, you know, there are not many women in your field. And in a way, you could say that it enhances your visibility because you're one among many men. And at the same time, you know, able to have a voice in a research community where you may be the only woman is not necessarily easy. There are many women who find when they are still the only women in the room, find that incredibly challenging. And, you know, we may see a lot of women leaving certain fields because they, they're still remaining the only women. So when I'm in a room and I'm the only woman, for me, it's not a problem. I'm a scientist like them. No, no problem. But I do have to say, if you allow me to report a little sort of tale anecdote. So I wanted to do physics, not math, as an undergraduate. And at the time in Italy, you could go like a week earlier before finalizing your application to see what's going on. Some sort of open courses, open lectures. And the day I went... I opened the door of the lecture theater and I was the only woman in 150 people. So I, I opened the lecture theater and I was sitting at the back and I had 150 faces turning towards me, all guys. And I was the only lady there, the only woman there. And that put me massively off. But I was 18 at the time. And that was no way. I cannot do this. You know, I was sitting there. I was just the whole lecture was sitting there thinking no way I cannot do this and that put me off completely and I went to do maths I ended up in physics because my PhD was in physics but so that was my but then of course I grew and then you grew in confidence and grew as a person but in general today I am still finding a way to overcome that, right? It's still not finished. I, I still sometimes see from the body language, from, from the feel in, in a meeting, and then the awareness should, doesn't and shouldn't stop me to feel a scientist like all the others. So I'm sitting here for my own rights. I'm sitting here because I have to be here and I have rights to be here. And I'm a scientist and my ideas count as, as much as. So every time I feel that, oh, okay, she's a woman, then I say to myself, I'm a scientist. And my head is as good as all the others. And if I have something to say, which makes sense, and of course, not a stupid thing, uh, then I speak up. And that's definitely something that I always try to say to myself whenever I feel like that. And I still do. There is, it's still ongoing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a constant learning about that. <laughs> so it's using, it's always, I mean, maintaining the mindset of, of telling yourself, you know, I have the right to be here. I have the knowledge. But, you know, in a way, you can't let go of that. It's like an, an, ongo an ongoing kind of exercise. Yes, and this, there, is, there is always this unconscious bias in other people around that comes through, and it's inevitable. The, the key thing is to be aware of it and mitigate it and make other people at ease. So because also not it's done without thinking, right? It's unconscious. It's not because they want to, and that is you know, a mutual thing. It's from the woman, from the male. It's a mutual thing. So we have to... As women, we have to make others feel comfortable as well as. Can I ask you a controversial question? Because again, in, in terms of making other people aware of some of the biases that they display, whether it's you know conscious or unconscious, how do you feel that you've been able to point things out to people, you know, when there is clearly a behavior that is it's not even like an extreme behavior, but some often there is things that are very subtle and people will not become aware of them unless we inform them of how their behavior is influencing others. So now as a research leader, in a way you have, you know, if I may say the power of pointing things out to people, how do you, how do you feel that you can do that? Especially in, you know, in the very subtle things that maybe the type of words that people, the body language that people may have in meeting where you can say to a colleague, can, can, you know, after a meeting, can we have a chat? Do you feel that you're able to do it or is it something that's still really difficult? Uh... No, I, I do that. 
So I normally do these one-to-ones. And if I feel that there is something wrong, of course, I don't point the finger, but I, I ask questions like, how, how do you feel about the meeting? So how do you feel that has happened? Uh, or, you know, what do you think is, is this other person thinking? So how do you feel that person was during the meeting? And that was just a way to start opening up a little bit. Uh, and then point possibly the alternative way of behavior or trying to figure out that person that behaved in that way, what were the reasons for that behavior to help, to trying to figure out, okay, so you have this difficulty, how else you can express that? So what, what can we do to make both of you comfortable about this and all of us around <laughs> comfortable about this? Uh, you take time to get to this point where you have enough confidence to do this one-to-ones. As a young person, I would go to my supervisor or I would go to my mentor or I would go to my uh, line manager. And I wouldn't be able possibly to, to approach the one-to-one. And then I think I urge any young person or any young researchers that feels that to go to their mentors, to do, to go to their supervisor or to go to their line managers if they feel that there is something wrong as soon as they feel it. Because sitting on it does not help. It makes things worse. And I do think that these type of conversations, the first point, and very, very, very often, in my experience at least, as they always been a game changer. They always worked before going to HR or any others of the most extreme solutions. And and very often these are all unconscious and people don't want to behave like that, but they just don't realize. And a very nice, healthy working environment, and these is these one-to-ones are really important. I think that's an important thing that you just said is that many of these behavior people don't necessarily want to you know, to hurt or be unpleasant, but because of the way you were raised or the way that, you know, things were done in the past that people just kind of carry on practices. Yeah. So it sort of leads us to the conversation now of having worked for many years in, in academia and experiencing your transition in, in, a, in a very different professional environment. What kind of leader are you now becoming, you know, in an industrial setting? And how are you learning to establish a, a research culture within a, a non-academic environment that you feel is really supportive of other early career, you know, researchers? So here... I'm lucky because I have a very supporting environment and I see young people being extremely supported in career progression, but also in bringing forward their ideas. So speak up. So I'm very, very lucky because of this. The type of leader that I'd like to become is one of those leaders that influence people. One of those leaders that catalyze tension, one of those people, one of those leaders that are there to support when it's needed, but also to challenge the person to get more, to be better, right? To grow. And these, this type of leadership comes with time, but also comes with the awareness of uh, where I am now and what do I need to become that leader? So being a leader doesn't really come for free. It's not uh, genetic. <laughs> Sometimes it's genetic, it depends on the personalities, but you've got to build that profile. You, you've got to learn how to be a leader. And that, that's what I, why I'm doing all these courses on leaderships and things, because I want to learn how to be one of those leaders that can influence young people. You know, one of the things that I really really like to think is that you know some young researchers get influenced inspired by what I say and becomes a lot better than I am that would be my dream uh, something you know a student not just a student but also you know some a postdoc that works with me or here in this case some associate scientist that works with me that becomes better better than me and that that's fantastic that's what the type of leader that I like to to be so a type of leader that I'd like to let the people that are I'm leading to grow to grow to be better to grow to be what they want to be 
And um, here in the industrial context, in a way, the fact that we have deliverables, the fact that we have stakeholders, we have projects helps, right? Because you can adjust the timeline of your work and you also can see where there are slots where you could do your own personal growth or even to identify where you would need one because not necessarily that there there would be other challenges or different projects or even different type of people where you don't know how to handle them and so that's where coaching comes in (laughs) and and one thing that I am very keen is on inclusion and diversity diversity not just in terms of ethnicity of culture but also in in diversity in terms of ideas, diversity in terms of how we think. Uh, I don't want a group that we all think the same. I don't want a group that they all follow what I think. Absolutely not. I, I would want to lead a group that challenge my, my, my thinking, challenge my points, groups that have a, a diverse um, way of thinking, being, really. So that, that's something that I'm trying to work towards. It's funny because I had a conversation not long ago with, with an academic who works in Switzerland. And we, we were talking about, you know, the challenge when, when you're a new PI and you're recruiting your first PhD student, you know, how risky it is, you know, who you recruit in terms of these first few years as, as a PI and how challenging it is, you know, to make decisions on who you're recruiting. And So when you're building your research team, whether it's an academia or industry, which advice will you give to new research leader in terms of thinking their approach to recruitment, to be open to having people on board who are, yeah, have a very different way of thinking? Because in a way, it takes vulnerability to be to have on board people who are so different from you, who are going to challenge you. And, you know, as a new PI, you know, you may not, be ready yet to have somebody who is really pushing you i would say you've got to recruit thinking of the project so the project has of course needs to be sort of laid out to have uh, different ways of evolving so if something goes wrong you need to have a plan b so you need to recruit thinking okay this person would this person be able to switch immediately to plan b if things go wrong, because as a new PI, the sort of confidence that you could get is on the on the how well the project is going, right? On the on the on the results. So if the project is successful, then it's less of a worry to think about, and you can concentrate on handling the person, the personality, the supervision, the mentoring, the the coaching. But if then you have problems with the results as well, then you have to put a lot of effort in trying to make the science work. So the first thing is to have a very strong project, a couple of sort of plan B and C, and recruit thinking, is this person the right person to be able to switch from plan A if it doesn't work to plan B and allow me to have the science done strong? Because that will cover a very big bulk, right? So first project, first PhD students, that student needs to go to completion. That's the first thing. Then while you do that, you can be relaxed and trying to learn how to handle the personal relationship with your students. And therefore, you can start to think, okay, so maybe I can get now someone, because you already have a group, someone that can interact well with the others in the group. So to be complementary, but at the same time, in line so that that's a second level of complexity but if it is your first student my advice would be get the best possible students academically to cover that part and then slowly (laughs) you learn how to grow the students and yourself to grow the group so marta to to kind of finish off our conversation i mean you have so so much experience and uh, we could probably talk, you know, for many hours. If you had to start all over again, your research life, your research career, what, you know, what would you tell your young self in terms of making the, the journey a bit easier? So one thing that I would tell to my young research self is to find more coaching and more mentoring. That's definitely. Uh, and to move more, not to 
been stuck in the same place for a long time and to do it as early as possible because then it comes to the point where stability is important for other reasons remember okay we're talking about work but life is not just work (laughs) it's other things so finding the right balance between life and work is super important but as a young self you know I would say to myself okay find more mentors find more coaching and move around a lot more when you can so all the young people are listening right now don't be afraid to move around don't be afraid to put yourself out of your comfort zone at the beginning of your career because all this helps to build your confidence that you're going to need later when when you can't move that much yeah when when sort of personal circumstances make it make it harder just based on my experience and what i've learned in these years don't isolate yourself don't don't put yourself in a sort of a niche in a cocoon and do your own science just open them up open your science up to others even exploring avenues that initially you didn't think of because it's this that helps you to learn to grow and at the same time to be visible and the opportunity to publish, to work, or to make impact in many different areas that are a little bit maybe outside your initial project is what it takes to break um, an academic career or any professional career, you know, to advance. What are you the most excited about in terms of the work that you are doing now? Because, you know, it's a, it's a new, you know, area of you know of a different way of working but what is really the 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 key thing that you you're really excited about this transition to working in AstraZeneca definitely the fact that I can use my knowledge my skills my ideas my head my intelligence to make something that has a direct impact on the life of many cancer patients for me, this is the most exciting. And it, this is what it takes me to work over what am I, I am expected to work. It's the motivation that whatever can come out of my head or my experience of my knowledge or what I've learned has a direct impact on the life of these people. So that is certainly the thing that is the most exciting for me and the, the motivation that drives me here in this in this new adventure <laughs> well thank you so so much Marta for taking the time to uh, talking with me uh, it's been really a pleasure thank you thank you thank you Sandrine thank you everyone <laughs>